This is the current federal tax developments for the week of October the 2nd, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan College Education and by your State Society of CPAs. This week, we're looking at a few things that have happened over the week. There have been a lot of small developments, but not, you know, so we have a lot of things to talk about, but not really anything that's going to dominate the week, shall we say. We'll start with the first one is the IRS has reduced the P-10 fees substantially, was announced this week. That's in response to a court case uh, that was decided earlier this year. So we're going to get a better structure there. We'll see as we go forward. IRS also updated a prior revenue procedure that now makes it clear the wash sale rules will not apply to losses on dispositions of money market funds when the fund has imposed a liquidity fee for cashing in shares. We'll talk about IRS highlights, uh, their new capabilities that were added to tax pro accounts. So we'll talk about what's there, what you might use those accounts for, and how we'll, you know, what the new things are that we're dealing with. We also had the IRS announce this week that employers can set up leave-based donation programs to direct an employer and employee's unused leave time uh, convert it to cash, and then have that cash sent for relief for Hawaiian wildfires. Uh, we'll talk about this type of program, which has been used multiple times before, uh, how it works, why it's tax advantageous for the parties to do it this way, and other issues related to this. We'll talk about the fact that FinCEN has granted an additional 60 days for entities created in 2024 to file initial reports. So we'll deal with that background as well. So with that, let's get started with the P-10 drop. These are temporary kind of, you know, interim, I guess, final rules. Uh, but Treasury decision 9980 that came out on September the 29th. And this rule provides that the cost of a P-10 is going to drop from $30.75 to $11. They've also introduced identical proposed regulations to get finals available at some point that will do the same thing. Uh, why the big drop? Did it suddenly get less costly to run the program? Well, not really. It was the IRS had lost in the case of Steele versus United States, though not as badly as they had originally. So to remind you where this case was and what it dealt with, in 2017, if you may remember that year, you did not have to pay a P-10 fee. At that point, the court had barred collection of the fee. And so for 2018, um, we didn't have to pay a P-10 fee. You got your P-10 renewed by just going in, asking for renewal. There were no funds to be paid in. However, the IRS appealed that case. And when it went to the Court of Appeals, it was partially reversed on appeal. The, you know, the court had held essentially, the appeals court held that while the IRS was allowed to charge a fee for this, they couldn't include certain costs. They had to change how the math they were doing it. So the fee was too high, uh, but not totally not allowed. So that became part of the deal. Now, in February of this year, on February 21st, it went back to the trial court for the trial court to handle the facts findings, because generally appeals courts do not sit back and dig through all the specific facts. They outline the basic structure, outline the methods that should be used for computing these funds, and then ask the district court to go back in and using the logic they put forward, come up with these costs. So 
this is where we end up with. So I guess the good news is you're going to pay a little bit less for your P10 fees this year. I mean, well, it's actually nearly, you know, two thirds less. I uh, guess the bad news is that that doesn't really make a huge difference. I doubt it's going to make up for other inflationary pressures you've had, but little things better. I guess you can get a couple of lattes or something with what you've saved here. But in any event, you know, the fee is going down. So we'll put it that way. Next up, the IRS issued Revenue Procedure 2023-35, issued on the 28th of September. And what this is supposed to do is deal with a special case. Actually, a change in SEC rules is really what's driving this. If you remember the wash sale rule, under the wash sale rule, if I sell securities at a loss and either in the 30 days before the sale or the 30 days after the sale, I acquire substantially similar securities that I have to take that loss and not deduct the loss, but add it back to the basis of the securities that I you know, acquired that replaced those I had sold. So that was basically the structure there, right? Now, this is to amplify and supersede Revenue Ruling 2014-45. That dealt with a program the SEC allowed. You may remember in 2008 when the reserve fund broke the buck, as the term goes. That is that the redemption price for the reserve fund uh, dropped below $1 per share. I'm sure some of you remember the reserve fund, right? It was a relatively popular money market fund. I remember seeing it, you know, for many years as it was in practice from my earliest days, you know, going on, you know, 24 about 25 years at that point. And suddenly that fund became a problem as credit markets froze up following the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And you may remember that that was a problem. So if you redeemed yourself then, you you know cashed in your reserve fund uh, shares, well, you got back less than a dollar per share because you know they had all of these short-term securities that usually uh, such money market funds are invested in short-term high liquid securities that suddenly became illiquid. And that's called breaking the buck and you'd have a loss. Now, the problem with that, let's say if it's not quite as disastrous as a reserve fund, is that let, let's say that you, you know, we had this situation and then you go ahead and you're still reinvesting dividends after doing part of it. And this is because the SEC came up with rules at the time that allowed in certain situations, a fund was allowed to impose a liquidity fee if they were in a situation where it appeared the fund would be at risk of breaking the buck. Now, there were certain very object objective standards in there that you did it. So back in 2014-45, the IRS ruled that if you did pay that liquidity fee under that program and that generated your loss, that yeah, the wash sale rules didn't apply because in that case, you might have just, you know, we didn't break the buck. We have a liquidity fee to stop people from checking their funds out. But in the interim, you know, you, for whatever reason, wrote a check out of there. So you ended up cashing in part of your fund. But instead of getting $1,000 in the check, you know, you got $1,000 less the fee. That was a loss. And then the fund came around and paid interest. And that meant some of that fee ended up being treated as part of the reinvestment 
because you had acquired funds within that window, the 60 day before the 30 days before, 30 days after the 60 day window, you had had an acquisition of equivalent securities. So the IRS ruled then, nope, it doesn't count. Now, what's happened here is the SEC has changed the rule. And the rule was changed because there was concern that if you have this situation and you can do the liquidity fee, which is meant to prevent people from, in essence, having a run on the fund to get their stuff out of the dollar, being afraid that the value is going to keep dropping. So the idea is you put this in place to tell people if you pull out now, you're definitely going to get hit with this fee. Now, a concern was expressed, though, that because you had to meet certain criteria and because we may see that criteria, we're coming closer and closer to meeting it that that might actually cause people to jump in and redeem their funds out of the uh, money market fund before the liquidity fee kicked in, which could accelerate the problem. So the SEC changed the rule and now essentially money market funds, you know, they're basically their management is going to be allowed to impose a liquidity fee at any point they feel that there's some risk, something might, you know, that that the people may start doing it. So as soon as there appears to be the first question that there's going to be a problem, you could impose this liquidity fee. Now, we haven't really seen these very often, but in theory, they exist. Now that we've changed it, unfortunately, notice 2014-45 was tied directly to the old program. So now I should say revenue procedure 2014-45. Uh, because of that, we now have this. And so since we no longer have the criteria method, what they're saying now is, yeah, generally in these situations, the fact it's a money market fund, it is meant to, and has been, and everybody's agreed with the election to treat it as a $1, hold $1 value. Uh, because of that, we're going to go ahead and we're going to say, if you do, for some reason, trigger the loss, the wash sale rule will not apply if you, you know, when you reinvest the next earnings uh, or you buy some back in, you put funds back in there is not going to trigger the wash sale rule. So that's that. That's a little update on how the wash sale rule works with money market funds. Next up, the IRS is going to tell us that, hey, we're going to be adding some new capability to the tax pro accounts on the IRS website. This is IRS News Release 2023-182. This came out September the 29th of 2023. And what this does, if you remember, the tax pro account is something the IRS has set up. And from early on, they've told us that they expect to be adding features to that account over time. And they have done some. If you're not aware, it started out mainly that you could go in the tax pro account. And if you have one of those, that you could do things like obtain transcripts. Uh, of from your clients, assuming that your power of attorney was on file. We have gotten so that we can now electronically submit our power of attorneys uh, for certain situations online and get immediate access if the client has their own IRS account. So we, we can send our power of attorney there. They can electronically sign it so everything can get in and done quickly. Uh, well, what the IRS has done is started adding new features to the account. Uh, and these, for the most part, are going to be in, tied to you tying your CAF number uh, to the account. Some things you can do is you can manage active client authorizations on file. 
with the CAF database. So you can take a look at them. You can figure out who you currently have authorizations for, whether they're powers of attorney or just rights to essentially receive information that are online. You can do that online and work with it. You now have the database. Uh, previously, you really didn't know for sure what all was out there. And it would include powers of attorney that have been processed that aren't part of the things that were filed online, which can also make it a bit simpler. They will also allow you now with the new setup to view certain client information. And they specifically call out that you could see balance due. What is the current balance shown as due for the client? So if especially working collections issues, uh, it could be very helpful to know, you know, what's currently going on, what shows you're working a notice. So you're trying to keep up with, you know, has the IRS applied this to the account? As of yet, what's happening, you can look at and do that. You also can revoke your authorizations. So you can go ahead and say, you know what? I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to work. I'm not, I want to revoke that authorization. So I no longer have power of attorney. I no longer have a right to information disclosure with regard to this client. Something that probably makes sense to do uh, because there is at least some risk if you have authorizations on file and you could act for something and for whatever reason, the clients left, they fired you, they terminated you, uh, but some action is required to be taken and you know the client doesn't take it, but you had the power, there's at least some concern in certain situations you could end up being held liable for that. So you'd like to simply get rid of, you don't need the authorization. The theory is you could get rid of it. You can do that online. That's the way it goes. Now, uh, the IRS does state they will be adding more features to the tax pro account in the future. So you should be aware of that. Keep up with what's going there. Now, if you've not yet linked your CAF number, you can do that online. If you have a current tax pro account, otherwise you need to set one up. Now, setting up a tax pro account does require you to use IDME still. So yes, that's still there. Yes, submitting your documentation is still required via IDME. Uh, but once you're in there and have it done, you could then set up your CAF if you've not done so. I've done so. I know other people have. Currently, what happens is you give your CAF number online, right, in the account. You indicate you want to link it. They will then send a letter to the address last used by the CAF number, the current CAF number address, with a PIN. And when you get that, you then can input that PIN and that will link your CAF number, your centralized access file number, CAF number, to your, you know, basically to your tax pro account, which will allow you to look at the authorizations and the like on that account. So if you haven't done that already, probably not a bad thing to do. It can make it much easier to manage your powers of attorney and other such items. Next up. We all know about the wildfires in Maui uh, that took place recently. This notice, 2023-69, issued on September 28th, is meant to allow employers and employees uh, to set up programs that would allow employees to direct some of their leave time they've not used uh, to be converted to cash, an equivalent cash number, and then donated directly to victims of the 2023 Hawaii wildfires. Okay. So we've seen these programs before. This really is nothing terribly new. 
the way this works for a program like this is, so you're an employee, let's say that you have a week and a half worth of leave and you want to give some to the, you know, to Hawaiian relief. So let's say you decide to donate three of your days. So you had, let's say, eight days of leave. You donate three of your days, right, to the to the fund. So your employer will take the cash value, what you had been paid for those three days, and they will turn around and send it to the, you know, to charities that are supporting the victims of the wildfires in Hawaii. Right. So when you do this, the question becomes, if we didn't have this relief, the problem would be that while an employee is not taxed on their leave, uh, generally we are going to be taxed, you know, until we use it. We are going to be taxed if we essentially are able to convert that to cash, right? And then have that cash sent to somebody on our behalf. That would generally be a taxable transaction because now there has been compensation. The employee has directed where it's to go and that would be a taxable transaction. So what these programs do is, is avoid that issue. So I, if your employer has set up this program to allow employees to donate to these Hawaiian, you know, donate to the wildfire relief, the employee does not recognize the amount of the leave that was converted to cash as income on the return. Now, the flip side of this is the employee also does not get to deduct that on Schedule A. Makes sense, right? You know, you don't pick up his income, you don't deduct it. That's way better than putting it in as income, having to pay FICA on it, and then turning around and getting a below-the-line deduction, which especially if, as is true of most people, you can't itemize, will probably be worthless. So this is generally this, uh, you know, I can't think of many cases where this would not be the preferable structure. Uh, so that's how we're going to do it. Now, the employer gets to go ahead and deduct this payment as wages. Not He doesn't have to treat this as if it was a charitable contribution being made by the uh, entity. And that's important because, remember, charitable contributions tend to have limitations. We have the limitation, the 10% of taxable income limitation. If it was a C corporation, we have the uh, limitations on you know total AGI for individuals who have to go through onto the return, they'd have to itemize it. And it's questionable that this isn't really a charitable contribution anyway. So the employer picks it up, but the good news is to the employer, they don't need to pay the payroll taxes on this amount. So overall, good thing all the way around as far as everybody does it. So these programs are now allowed. As I noted, we've seen these programs. This isn't the first time we did. You remember during COVID, we had programs like this for relief. We've had them for various uh, hurricanes and other situations. So this is just a standard program, not all that unusual to see a program like this put together. Next up, we have FinCEN. Now, this is a set of proposed regs that we had already discussed this title. We didn't know what the title meant, but we knew these regs were coming. This is a project, RAN 1506-AB62, Beneficial Ownership Information Reporting Deadline Extension for Reporting Companies Created or Registered in 2024. 
and this came down on September the 28th. Now, if you remember back in August, we discussed that OIRA had reported they had received these regulations to review. We didn't know what were in the regulations. We just knew the title of the project. OIRA basically finished that review this week and the day after, as I recall, the, it was announced as being finished, uh, we got the proposed regulations released and eventually to be published in the Federal Register. Now, what this changes, as the title says, and this is important to understand, we're going to talk about the beneficial ownership interest rules, but this will only affect entities that are formed in 24. It will not change anything for entities that are formed prior to 24. So if you formed an LLC today, this doesn't impact you. And similarly, it won't change the effect of anything formed after the end of 24. So an LLC formed on January 12th of 2025 is also not impacted. Now, if you remember, we're talking about the initial reports here. If you remember under the rules generally, the general rule, and there was a special exception for entities that were in place by the end of 23, that were in existence by the end of 23, there was a special exception there. But otherwise, you basically have 30 days from the day the Secretary of State or equivalent office essentially accepts, you know, basically issues you, creates your entity, you know, to accept the application whatsoever um, and pub publishes it uh, to get your information to FinCEN. And as you may remember, if you fail to timely report, then the penalty is up to $500 per day. So expensive, shall we say, and very quick. Now, there's been some complaints and had been that, well, you know, it, this is kind of weird. I, I formed some company on December 31st of 2023, and I don't need to get this information into FinCEN for essentially a year, right? I've got until January 1st of 25. However, and that's under the special rule for entities in place prior to the end of 23. But if I form that same entity on January 2nd of 2023, then I got a problem because then I need to get filed basically by the end of January, very beginning of February, I would have to have gotten the report, the initial report filed essentially 11 months before it would have been required had I gotten my entity formed a day earlier or, you know, or a couple days earlier. So there were concerns about this very, very short time frame for this brand new reporting. So FinCEN said, okay, we understand that we're going to have, we're going to put a special rule in for 24 uh, to allow us to, you know, kind of step back and allow people to get used to this. And they're probably just going to be learning about it in 24. So we're going to give them a bit more time. So what they're going to say is for those in 2024, the initial filing deadline will be extended by 60 days. As it was previously 30 days, you know, 30 days after they had to file it, it will now be 90 days. So that January 2024 entity will be filing 90 days later. So by end of March, beginning of April, they'll be putting in their filing information 
and have to have that in the database, but they don't have to have it in there. You know, basically in January, we got to get everything together. You have until early April. So that'll be key. Now, as I say, it's important to remember as we bolded on the screen there, this is only for entities formed in 2024. It does not change the initial report due date for entities that are formed in any, any other year. So for any other year, it's not going to change it. And to remind you what those rules require, if your entity was formed before 2024, so it's formed by the end of 2023, then your filing date for the initial report is January 1st, 2025. As well, it's not going to change anything formed after 24. That will go back to the rule we had for everything formed after 23 to 30 days. So again, if you form an entity at the end of 24, let's say December 31st, 24, you'll have 90 days to file the initial report. But if you form that entity within the first couple of days of 25, you're going to be down to a 30-day requirement. The idea is we're giving you time to get used to this. But come 2025, when you form an entity, the theory is everybody should be up to speed now, like attorneys and other parties should be up, up to speed about the fact you got to get this thing filed. And supposedly that'll make it possible for it to work. Now, one thing I'll remind you is you don't have to wait to the last second. And there probably is a good reason why you shouldn't be waiting until the last day because things happen and we'd prefer not to be late. Well, I doubt they're going to assess the $500 per day penalty on everyone, you know, that's at all late. I suspect they're mainly going to be concerned with if it appears you really are laundering money. It's still not good to be late. And certainly for CPAs, you know, we're associated with financial statements. And the problem is failing to file this on time is an illegal act, which is treated differently than if it was just a contingent liability for the $500. You know, we have a potential criminal liability of 10 grand, uh, you know, and a potential civil liability of $500 per day for this illegal act. And that would cause us some problems in reporting, uh, most likely having to record it. So we'd prefer to avoid the problem uh, when we deal with this sort of thing. So as I say, probably going to file early, but now here's the downside of filing early. So if I form an entity, let's say here, it's formed by the end of this year. And in January of 24, they open up the filing. I say, I'm just going to take care of this now. I don't want to mess with it. Remember, if any data changes, you are required to update that data within 30 days. And as I read the rules, even though we might have till January 1st of 25 to file the initial report, or we might have 90 days to do so, once we've actually done so, then if something changes the next day, we're on a 30-day clock because nothing's changed that. So be aware of that when we talk about this particular set of rules. Finally, the IRS in news release 2023-178 issued on September 26th announced that they're going to roll out chatbots to help taxpayers with matching notices, CP2000, CP2501, CP3219A notices. Now, as things stand right now, I'm taping this on September 30, uh, midday, early afternoon here in Phoenix. And as of right now, you know, this morning it appeared we were heading to a government shutdown. Now it appears maybe we're not. 
Of course, it could change again because the Senate still has to vote on something. And who knows when that's going to happen. But obviously, if we'd have gone to shut down, this would have been a bigger thing. And I suspect, at least to some extent, rolling it out last week was partially related to this because, yeah, if you're not aware, the IRS did publish their contingency plan of what would happen if, in fact, we go into shutdown mode. And even today, we're talking about a continuing res resolution that would only keep things open for 45 days. So if they can't extend beyond that, you know, if they run into trouble 45 days later, you still could have a shutdown. If that happened, the IRS would stop answering the phones and they would stop working correspondence. So, you know, it might be helpful to get the computer uh, to do things. And that's also reason to worry about the tax pros accounts too, which I suspect is also why they push those. Because again, the computer would keep running. So you could get powers of attorney put in uh, for those limited circumstances if you and the client can both do the thing, you know, get it working. And the other side of that is you then could work the case and at least potentially get it paid if, you, if they're willing to pay online, potentially get the whole thing solved without any person at the IRS effectively being involved. So I have a feeling that's part of the reason why the chatbot notices came out this week. And you'll probably know by the time you're listening to this much better than I, whether we actually did avoid a shutdown or everything still fell apart at the end. Uh, but we talked about this, this chatbot bit is not totally new. The IRS has been doing this for a while. So we've had the chatbots, right? And this is just a brand new set. And again, the key issue here though, they're dealing with the matching notices. And these, as you know, especially CP2000 is something that we see all the time, right? We've got a difference here, things don't work. So the taxpayer could be helped to walk through the situation of you know dealing with their CP2000. And it can help with questions such as what a taxpayer should do if they receive this notice, right? What to do if you need more time to respond is in there in the chat bot. And also how to find out if the IRS has received the response. So again, we have the note, you know, we have the basically the chat bots in there taking care of this. We do expect this to expand. Uh, we may hear more about it especially since if we're heading toward another shutdown in 45 days, uh, maybe as we get close to that, something else gets expanded here. Just be interesting to watch and keep your eyes on. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of October the 2nd, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Uh, if you have any questions, you can email me at zollers at developments.com. I also monitor the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, um, and Illinois, and Washington, I should say, too, in that mix, as well as postings on the discussion forum uh, in the Idaho Society. So if you have anything else you need, you know, if, you're, if you have any questions and you're a member of those societies, go ahead and post things up there. Otherwise, we'll see how next week goes. Again, we're heading to the final deadlines. And I always have a little fun with my week's run around this time. So hopefully we'll have something coming up next week. But in any event, uh, you know, and if the IRS is open, we might actually have something happen. So we'll see what goes on there. Oh, by the way, the tax court was supposed to stay open. Or that, that's their theory. So if nothing else, we might still have tax court decisions if they did shut down. Which again, as I'm recording this, it looks like now they're not. But a couple of hours ago, it looked like they were. So... Again, you'll know more than I do. So in any event, we'll see you next week here on Current Federal Tax Developments.